Thanks for listening to Connection Church's podcast. As we continue in our Christmas series titled, Tis the Season, think about what the holiday season means to you. Is it about money, gifts, family, or is it truly about the birth of Jesus Christ, our Savior? Our prayer is that you understand what Christmas is all about by listening to today's message. Good morning, Connection Church. This is the time when you go, oh, crap, Brandon's not preaching? Just all do that very real quick, like, just all be let down. Because you also know by now that when I preach, it's usually something extremely heavy and um, awkward. Um, that's just kind of Brandon's thing. He just backs up and goes, why don't you do this one? Um, so we'll get to that in a minute. But to begin today, um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this as we get into it, but I do want to take a moment um, as a church, um, you know, as a group of um, a lot of believers and maybe some who aren't believers today um, want us to join together and pray for the, the families, uh, the families of victims in Newtown, Connecticut. Um, and as we do this, you will see exactly where this timely message is coming from that was planned over three weeks ago. Um, so I want us to join together figuratively and literally. So I would like for you to touch someone next to you, grab a hand. And let's pause for just a moment as we pray. God, you are not surprised by anything, and you know all things. And with that said, God, we have so many questions. So many things run through our minds as we sit in front of the television and listen to the newscast over and over and over, hoping that it ends differently. God, we hurt and we grieve with those families. We pray for peace that only comes from you today. As hopefully churches all over this nation are pausing right now, all together, lifting them, knowing that you are in the midst of it. And you lead us through all things. Only you can make something messy, beautiful again. And we pray for that, for those families, and for all of us who are affected. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So in the past few times I've preached, I've had to preach about excuses that we give Sex. So I was like, you know, what's next? So Brandon calls me and goes, um, on the 16th or 15th, whatever today is, he said, I want you to preach on um, depression. Really? Really? How do you even start that and it go well at all during the entire thing? But that is what we're going to do. But to introduce this, You know, in in church, we really don't talk about messy things. Now, if you've been at Connection more than a week, you know, we do. Um, We're not really scared of messy things, um, and we talk about those things. But let's be honest about those things. Let's be honest about what God says about these things. I've been in church um, in the South, especially for a long time. And we really, I think, for more um, than anything, 
church at large in the South, we go to church to make an appearance, right? We go to church to be noticed. We get all dressed up. Again, we're talking about everybody else, not Connection Church, okay? We get, you know, but, but if you've been in church for a long time, you spent time in church for a long time in, in the traditional set, nothing is wrong with the traditional setting, but we've not done a real good job with it. And it's become something about appearance. Guys, you can, you can dress nice on Sunday and, and, and look good and dapper and feel like you can sleep with anybody you want to during the week. As long as you come back to church, everything will be fine. Ladies, you feel like, well, I can talk about anybody, gossip, and I'm not being stereotypical, but I am. So you can gossip and talk about anybody you want to, but as long as you look nice on Sunday, they'll think you love Jesus. And that's what we've done in our church culture. How has that served the church? How well has that gone for us as a culture? We're different in the church, but we're really the same outside the church walls. So we've learned that perfect people go to church, right? We've learned that you've got to be perfect. I've heard that so many times. I really want to come to church, but I've really got to get some things straight in my own life before I go. You know, it's like, you know, if you have somebody coming to clean your house and you clean your house before they come clean your house, you know, I'm sure there's nobody like that in here or you don't know anybody like that in here, but it doesn't even make sense. You know, I mean, changing my oil and then taking it to the place. And can you change my oil? I didn't want you to see how dirty it really was. So I changed it first. But if you could change it again, it probably got a little dirty on the three miles on the way here. So we fake it. You know, we fake it till we make it. We just kind of hang on to what's going on. And we don't want to be found out. So in American culture, when we're found out in church, what we do is then we go to another church and tell those people how the other church hurt us so bad. That's just kind of how we roll. It's never our fault. We never did anything wrong. They hurt us. We show up and don't want anybody to talk about real issues. We water it down. Well, you know, if you can get anybody's attention, we, you talk about sex and money, people run off and get mad or walk out the back. It's happened here. It's kind of humorous. But, you know, that's just how it goes. After I preached that sermon on sex, someone came up to me and said, well, you, you would never preach that at another church around here. I was like, well, I probably could. They said, well, probably the last one you preached to that place. Yeah, you're right. You're right. But this is what we believe. We believe we got a cross picture. I think it's going to come up here. There we go. We believe that on this side of the cross, this would be the saved side of the cross. We get saved by Christ and, and everything's hunky-dory. So we're on this side of the cross, saved by grace. Now on this side of the cross, we are not saved. We're empty. We, have, we are hopeless. There is nothing good about what's going on in our lives. There's no direction. Uh, all that is, is going on. So it, it's not about... Um, what we do have, it's about what we don't have. We don't have Christ and we're not saved. Well, what's very interesting as we get into this sermon is that, that people on this side of the cross, the saved side, are just as screwed up as the people on this side of the cross. We carry some of the same issues and the reason for that is all the things that we did, which, okay, here it is. All the things we did on this side, just correct me if I'm on the wrong side. He drives people crazy. He started over, I'm confused. 
on this side of the cross, all that we've done, all that we've packed into our lives prior to knowing Christ, we hook up like a train locomotive and we drag it over here with us. We bring all those issues with us and it is a lot like a locomotive. And when I work with couples in my office, one of the things I tell them in premarital work is that you both are a locomotive and you have your train cars and they're full of all the things from your past. And in premarital work, my goal is to slow those trains down before they collide because they're going to collide. All the stuff comes with you. So it's just like that on our non-safe side. We drag all that stuff with us and it continues to come out day by day. So can we all agree that we struggle with crap every day? We just agree with that. One of the misconceptions in church is that the people on this side look at the people on that side and think that it's just easy. They think that we just sit around, eat bonbons, sing kumbaya, and everything is going to be okay. But if we're honest, we know that's not the case. One of the messiest and most common things that we suffer with is depression. Well, I want to give some definitions of depression, the clinical standpoint, and then walk through some things that get us there, but then some steps to get us out. So well, what is depression? Depression is a medical illness that causes a persistent feeling of sadness and loss of interest. Depression can cause physical symptoms too. Also called major depression, major depressive disorder, and clinical depression. It affects how you feel, think, and behave. Depression can lead to a variety of emotional and physical problems. You may have trouble doing normal day-to-day activities. And depression may make you feel as life isn't worth living. More than just about the blues, depression isn't a weakness. Nor is it something you can simply snap out of. Depression is a chronic illness that usually requires long-term treatment like diabetes or high blood pressure. Most people with depression feel better with medication, psychological counseling, or other treatment. With a room this size, you could literally reach out, and if it's not you who's dealt with depression, if you could reach your arm out, you will touch someone who has been affected by depression. It is rampant. We are a heavily medicated culture. Medication has gone, risen by 400% in the last 10 years. It's very, very, very rampant. Well, for those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Joey Fennell. And um, served in ministry for 13 years in youth ministry. And now I have a private practice called Fresh Start Counseling. And I serve as a licensed counselor. And deal with depression on a daily basis with people, helping them walk through these things. So I think that's why Brandon asked me to preach about it. Um, But I've never really put a sermon together around this. Because in clinical work, if people want to talk about their faith, we talk about it. If they don't, then ethically I can't throw that at them. So this gives me an opportunity to talk about it clinically and really, really tell you how I feel. And I'm looking forward to this. I like to categorize depression um, in the way I treat it personally in my practice. And it's in three different categories that I look at it. The first category would be environmental depression. 
Environmental depression would be in the, in the environment that you live in. And this is more long-term stuff, like where you live, your parents, um, the, the work that you do, stuff that's a lot harder to change. So you're kind of stuck in this situation, your marriage. It could be all kinds of things, but it's longer term. You can't just say, flip the switch, I'm out of here. I don't want to be a part of this. The second one would be situational depression. Now, situational depression may be the loss of a loved one, an illness. It's more around a traumatic event. For instance, in Newtown, Connecticut, that would be situational. There's the immediate trauma. There's the event or the crisis. And then what follows that becomes a crisis in one's life. Begins beginning with anger and, and all the steps that we go through, but also leads to grief and mourning and loss. But the trauma happens, but it's more of a situation that is short-lived, and then you have to deal with it afterwards. And then the final thing is you know, what we call a chemical deficiency. Now, the jury is still out on chemical deficiencies. People really don't know how our brain works, and there's all kinds of studies out there about is there really truly a chemical deficiency. Now, if you listen to the Zimbalta commercials, they're convinced that there is because they want to sell you their medication. But let me tell you a little bit about what that means because medication is needed to increase the levels of serotonin in the brain. That's what it's used for. And on the side of this, there's no proof that antidepressants are actually doing this because we don't even know what a normal level of serotonin is. Can't be measured, has not been measured. So we don't even know if the, that drug is actually increasing it. Now there's proof that it works, makes us feel better, but on a kind of weird note, we don't know why. But, you know, for instance, just to compare this, we know that aspirin helps a headache. But that doesn't mean that we have a deficiency of aspirin. And it's kind of the same thing. We know that it works. We know that it makes a difference. We're not convinced of why it works. That's not to say that it doesn't work for you because there are people that I encourage to be on medication because it gives us a running start to work on the depression. But only 50% of people who take medication actually experience a permanent change in the way they feel. This can mean that there needs to be therapy alongside the meds or that you aren't depressed in the first place. It may be something else. For women who come in to see me and and they're talking about depression and not feeling well, the first thing I have them do is get their thyroid checked. So there can be a physical problem going on. For men, I, I ask you to get your testosterone checked. Have the old low T. There can be many things that can mask and look like depression. Okay? But my favorite part in church culture when it comes to depression is the whole statement that I've heard from so many pastors and people is Christians don't get depressed. Christians don't get depressed. If they love Jesus, they won't be depressed. I don't really agree with that. Okay? I think it's hogwash to say the least. So, Because if you read your Bible and you read all of it, some of the, the most famous heroes of our faith dealt with despair and being overwhelmed. Moses, he dealt with it. Jonah, obviously, he dealt with it. Everybody's heard of Jonah. And even Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, dealt with despair and being overwhelmed and not really knowing what direction to go in. First with Moses, he said in Numbers chapter 11, I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. 
If I found favor in your eyes and do not let me face my own ruin. He asked God to kill him. Jonah, we've heard of him. He said, he just came out and said it. Now, Lord, take away my life for it's better for me to die than to live. Kind of straight to the point. And then 2 Corinthians 1.8, Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. So much for God's not going to put anything more than you can handle on you. That little saying, Paul said the opposite right there. I don't think the people in Newtown would say that statement. God's not going to put any more than I can handle. I can't handle this. So today I'm going to look at this from the standpoint of being overwhelmed. Because I think we can all agree that we've been overwhelmed from time to time. But one of the things I really want to concentrate on is something that I'm overwhelmed with. You may think, that's not a big deal. Not really what I want to hear at that time. Same thing for you when you go to somebody and say, man, I feel... God, I'm overwhelmed by this. And somebody looks at you and like, that's stupid. Doesn't really give you the validation you're looking for, right? You know, if that's a therapist saying that to you, you need to change therapists. But we all have different parameters of being overwhelmed. But I think we can all agree there are things in our life that overwhelm us. Things happen to us without notice in life. We didn't see it coming. I, I, didn't, I didn't know he was going to move out. It's ripped me apart. Didn't expect that report from the doctor. Why'd she have to die? She was so, so young. I lost my job. The kids are growing up, and now I don't really know where my purpose is in life. And then pile on the fact that Christmas is around the corner. How are we going to pay for it? They can't not have Christmas. It's the first Christmas without him. So let's look at the book of Daniel. And this is going to paint a picture of someone who walked into an overwhelming situation and handled it correctly. And I think we can all identify with how overwhelming it was, but get some great insight as to what to do about it. So in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar, some of you may have heard of him. He has come forth after this wonderful night of dreaming that he had. And he goes to his wise people, the wise guys in the, in the palace there. And he says, I had a dream last night and I need for you to gather together and tell me what I dreamed and interpret it for me. Hmm. Sounds like an easy enough task, doesn't it? Wait a minute. We'll, we'll back up, back up. Why don't you tell us what you dreamed and then we'll interpret it for you? No, no. I need to tell you, you need to tell me what I dreamed and then interpret it. That seems a little odd, doesn't it? And a king has a few powers there. You know, basically, if he doesn't like the answers, he just kills you, takes you out. So this banter is going back and forth and he says, I want all the astrologers and wise guys to come to me and tell me what I dreamed and tell me what it means. And then he says, if you don't, I'm going to kill all the wise men. 
So look with me at Daniel chapter 2 beginning with verse 10. The astrologers answered the king, There's no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. So if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, prior to this, Daniel and his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who they were later renamed, they're part of this, um, this group of men who are being trained up. And King Nebuchadnezzar is trying to find the wisest and to surround himself with good people. So they're going to fatten them up and feed them all this stuff and work with them and train them and, and do all these things. But Daniel and his friends said, we don't believe in eating this kind of food. So he says, we just want to have uh, water and, and just the, the very, very minimal amount of vegetables that we can have and God will take care of us. And the leaders are like, you're crazy. You're going to die with that kind of diet. There's no way you can keep up. So after the fact they go through all this weeks and weeks and weeks, they come out stronger, brighter than anyone else. They rose to the surface with what God had promised them. So he had just gone through this pretty hard times and now gets a report that King Crazy has asked that somebody come and tell him his dream and interpret it. So I think we can agree that Daniel's in a pretty tight spot. He's feeling a bit overwhelmed. And I think that we can all agree that we come into that same situation. When I was in youth ministry here in Statesboro from 99 to 2005, um, during that time, I experienced something that I'd never experienced in ministry. Within our youth group or on the fringe of our youth group, we experienced four young people who committed suicide, who were either in our group or on the fringes of it connected to it. And during that time, it was overwhelming. And I learned so much about the mind. I learned so much about people because I was angry. I was bitter at God. And I was asking questions like, what, why, why is this going on? Shaking my fist at God and questioning, you know, if you can do all things, this might be a good time to step in because this is getting old and it's getting old quick. So I had this bitterness and struggle and, and God showed me so much and shared with me so much during that time. But it gets us overwhelmed and we have that overwhelmed feeling. So I want to share with you several ideas that I believe leads us to being overwhelmed, how we actually get there. The first one is just trying to do too much. I mean, let's be honest. We live in a fast-paced society. We have schedules. We got to do this at this time, this at this time, right on through the day. And it's all planned out all the way until, oh, yeah, I need to go to bed. We plan it all the way out to the bitter end. Not a lot of time to just sit back and do something. And, and maybe, you know, what I see a lot of times is we work so hard because we don't want to go back from where we came. 
A lot of us grew up in kind of sucky environments and, and maybe had parents who, who treated us wrong and whatever it may have been, but we're going to work hard to not go back there. So we live with this cause and effect thing, this performance mentality. I'm going to do and do and do, and if I do this, then that equals this. If I do this, it equals this, and then life hits us. And I do this, and oh my gosh, where'd that come from? She wasn't supposed to get sick. He wasn't supposed to be killed in that accident. That's not supposed to happen because I did what I was supposed to do and didn't get what I expected to happen. So we live in this cause and effect society that doesn't always work out. So I like to use this statement that sometimes we have got to stop and listen to the rain. We've got to stop and listen to the rain. And one of a guy that I saw driven, I mean, just works hard, does everything. And I was sharing with him this. I said, you've got to stop and just listen. You need to just take time, sit on your porch and listen to the rain. You know what his response was? How long do I need to do that for? I said, let me start over. I worked at a camp in New York when I was a teenager for a summer. Worked in the kitchen. It was a, a Christian boys camp. A lot of fun, but I was a, a worker, and a lot of times just to wind down from making cinnamon rolls and cooking and cleaning, I really didn't bake anything. I washed dishes, so I'll just go ahead and tell you. Um, but we would, there was this kind of a, not a, a big, big mountain, but it was up in the Adirondacks, so it was really, really hilly, really mountainous. But there was one place that was well known to all the employees that it was just a cool place that you would run up this path and there was a tree up there, it was worn down, and, and you would touch that tree and run back down, and we would time each other. It was kind of, you know, something probably wouldn't do today because I would die, throw up, something. It would just be bad. But we would just haul the mail as, as fast as we could, come back down, time it, and be like, yeah, three minutes, two, you know, whatever. It's just, just a lot of fun. Well, after we did this one day, one of the leaders, we were sitting around that night just kind of hanging out. He said, y'all been over to the hill, you know, doing that run thing? Like, yeah, yeah, whatever. He goes, man, isn't that an awesome view at the top when you get up there? It's like, what top? He's like, when you got up to the top, didn't you see God's creation? Like, no, man, I was working on time. There ain't no time to be looking at God's creation. I would have lost if I'd have looked at God's creation. But the next time I went up there, I stopped. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I've missed this. Totally getting to the top and literally turning my back on what God had intended for me to see. Only when we slow down our lives, when we slow down life, do we experience intimacy. We don't know what intimacy is until we slow everything down and experience it. Same thing in our marriages. You cannot work at a job or work with your kids all the way through and expect to have intimacy with your spouse. You can't expect to have intimacy with God if you're working so hard, you pass him. You don't wait on what God has to tell you. You just assume you know. Because we have all the answers according to society. You must slow down and listen to the rain. Daddies, we're the worst at this, aren't we? Hurry, hurry, hurry. We gotta go, we gotta go, we gotta go. We gotta... Daddy, where are we? Where are we gotta go? To bed. You know. <laughs> really? Let's race to bed and then sit there like that. We've got to slow down and listen to the rain. My wife is the best at letting me know when I'm doing too much. I don't 
like her very much during those conversations because she's right. But Jesus even spoke about resting in the last week of his life, the very last week of his life when he had sort of an agenda. He had some things to do. He spoke about rest. He took time out to rest. What do you do for fun? The second thing is we expect too much from other people. We expect too much from other people. This is when we fall into the blame game. Holy moly. These are tough times, aren't they? Everyone else is wrong. Let me tell you something. In my household, and we learned this as a child, if we can ever find that person named somebody, we will have peace in our house. (laughs) Somebody moved my shoes. Somebody stole my shoes. Somebody took my homework. Somebody took my book bag. I'm like, where is somebody at? Because he's got a bunch of y'all stuff. We've got to find somebody. If my boss, if my wife, if my kids, if everybody else would change, I'd be awesome. A man life would be good. Another name for that is the victim. Sorry to use that word, but you'll hear it a couple of times. We do become the victim. It's never your fault. We take no responsibility for what's going on. The third thing that gets us into this overwhelmed feeling is you see life unrealistically. Life in general is just unrealistic. Anybody struggle with sleep? Happens to a lot of us. I lay down some nights, my brain's just going, going, going. I think I need to count down from 100. Start counting in my mind, eyes are closed. I'm like, one. Start over 100. You know, and you're getting frustrated, like, just go to sleep. It doesn't really help a whole lot, you know? But we struggle with sleep a lot of times. It can be all kinds of other reasons why we do that. But when you struggle with sleep at night, you affect other people during the day if you didn't know it, okay? You're a booger, you know? You're mean. You're just obnoxious. Nobody wants to be around you. Like, well, I didn't sleep good last night. So go somewhere else. Take your attitude with you. But we do that. And sometimes it just catches up with us where we feel like, well, maybe it's just a phase I'm going through. I like that one. My favorite one is this. It's a midlife crisis. What does that mean? I heard a pastor say a midlife crisis is someone who's taking their eyes off the cross. It's like, man, that's kind of heavy. Can I just buy a Corvette and be happy? Probably not. So it's not a phase. It is a pit. It's a pit that we fall into and sometimes dig a deeper hole than was already there. The fourth thing is the desire to be accepted. Desire to be accepted. Who likes to be hated? Nobody likes to be in a situation where, you know, I, I know that person that liked me or said something wrong. And then we live with that and we chew on it and it kind of becomes despairing for us. And of course, there's a balance between wanting people to like you and doing what is right. Don't just go out and go, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. I don't care what people think. That's not the healthiest way to be. We should care what people think because we're carrying the cross. And that is the attitude that we want to share. So these feelings of being overwhelmed come from two distinct categories that I feel that I want to share with you. One is what happened to you. And what happened to you, you cannot help. The place you grew up in, the things that have happened to you, You were molested, you were raped, 
You were abused beyond anything some people can even imagine. You grew up in places that, that no one can fathom. The stories are horrendous. And you are in this room today. I know you are. The second thing are the decisions that you made. And people say, why did God make me like this? I don't want to feel this way. Well, it has to do with the things that happened to you and the choices that you have made. God didn't make you like that. God never intended for you to become like this. But because of things that happened to you and because of decisions you've made, that's where you are. The good news is coming. It's both and. Moving from depression has to do with both of these things. Things that happen to you and decisions you've made. You have to make the decision to call it what it is. It's not a phase. It's a pit and you must accept that fact. So let's look at three ways to move from this place. And you can do it just like Daniel did it. Three different ways. The first thing is we cannot deny what's going on. We cannot deny it. I know we have a large AA community in this church, which is awesome because I love the fact you call it what it is. You have to call it what it is. I am an alcoholic. I am a drug addict. I am one of those things. I'm going to, you got to start there. You don't get help until you realize you need help. So we cannot deny what it is. It is a pit. It is depression. It is being overwhelmed. A few years ago, we were um, on a kingdom builders trip. It was after the hurricanes in 2004, 2005. And we have a shower trailer that we took down to a church in Baton Rouge. And we went, took it all the way down there. We set it up. It was great. And, and Red Cross used it. And, and it was a, a center that had been open. The church had been open for, for mothers with young children who, or who were pregnant. And they came and stayed in this church, used our shower trailer. It was awesome. So for several months it stayed there. Well, then New Orleans was just coming back from, you know, Katrina and, and things were just starting to get back on the ground a little bit and the work was being done, but there were groups just going down there left and right to work and they needed a shower trailer. So we said, well, we'll come to Baton Rouge and move it to Louisiana or to New Orleans. So we go down there, we load it up and it was just, I mean, it was problem after problem after problem. Awful, awful. We get there and tires are flat and stuff's hanging off of it and it's just bad. So we finally get it loaded up late in the afternoon. There are three of us in, in the vehicle and we're pulling this trailer and it's like a, you know, a temporary office building. It's heavy and awkward, not real roadworthy. So we're dragging this thing across the bayou, literally over the bridges in the bayou. If you've ever been down there, there's nothing out there, a little shack here and there off of the bridges. We're cruising along and I glance in my rear view mirror and I see the door come off. Okay. It just, and, and it's like doing this slow motion thing in the air. I'm thinking to myself, you know, having to kind of lean down the truck in the mirror to look as it's getting higher and higher. I'm thinking, please God, don't hit another car. Please God, please don't. So it just lands in the road, just slides down the road, sparks come in. And the guy in the back of the truck, he's, what are you looking at? I was like, nothing. What, what, what just happened? They could hear signs. Nothing, nothing happened. I was just like, keep on going. Here we go. I said, what? I said, door flew off, dude. And uh, I said, let's just deny it ever happened, right? He said, well, I need to tell you something. I said, what? He said, you know those new magnets we got with the name of our company and the phone number and that <laughs> web address on it? 
yeah, where are you going with this? He said, I put one on the door before we left. <laughs> so we commenced to turn it around and going to get that door that was not in the best of shape when we got there. It had been hit a few times and the magnet was gone. But however, um, we cannot deny the reality of what's going on in our lives. I tried to deny what was going on that day and we cannot deny what's going on in our lives. To, to deny depression means that you are being selfish because I promise it's affecting everyone around you. Look at what Daniel did in verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Daniel did not deny the problem. He faced it head on. He spoke with tact and made a request for more time. He took control of the situation. He never said, well, maybe this is not really going on. Maybe he won't kill me. Maybe we should run. Maybe we should move away. Maybe we should go to another church. Whatever was going through his mind, it wasn't that. He spoke with tact and he took command. If you and I want to get out of this state, we cannot run from it. Everybody else knows it around us. Some of the greatest excuses I hear is just the way I am. It's just the way I am. You know, if you broke your foot, you'd be dragging around going, it's just the way I am. It's the way I am. Well, you go to the doctor and get it fixed. You ask for help. You don't just drag yourself around doing that. It's no different with depression. But we see emotional and mental things so much different than physical. But they're not. They're sometimes worse and can affect us long, long term. You've got to address it. Admit you have a problem. Number one thing that gets in the way, pride. Just so prideful. I don't want them to know. I can't let people know that I'm hurting. Word of advice, they know. They know. People do know. And you don't have to hurt, and you don't have to hurt alone. It only leads to death. That's what pride is. It leads to death. Nothing comes good from pride. The second thing, you cannot do it alone. You cannot do it alone. Connection Church, you know our, you know our mantra, connecting jacked up believers, unbelievers to God and jacked up believers to each other. Paraphrase, added a little bit to it. That's the truth. Daniel was the man here. Look at verse 17. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. He surrounded himself with other godly men. They didn't judge him. They got on their knees with him. They prayed for him. They overcame the problem together. We need each other. Men, we need each other. We need to gather together as men of faith and say, I've got a problem and I need help. Who are you sharing life with, men? Who are you asking and telling the deepest, darkest pieces of yourself and saying, I need help? Dealing with pornography. 
I'm dealing with this issue with my wife. If you're talking to another woman about your wife, you better stop it. Talk to another man. Men, let's join together and be the men God called us to be. Ladies, who are you talking to? Are you talking about your husband? Are you talking to someone to get help with your relationship? Single men and women, it's the same thing. Who are you talking to? Who are you sharing life with? Jesus even took Peter, James, and John to pray with him in the garden in the last few days of his life. He didn't go in there by himself. He said, I need help. I need you to go with me and do this with me. Jesus, if Jesus needs help, don't you think we knew? I mean, to say I don't need any help, you're basically saying, well, Jesus, I know you needed help, son of God, but I got this. Really? Yeah. See how that works out for you. It's why we have church. It's why we have connect groups. It's why we do life together. And Connection Church is a place where it's okay to not be okay. None of us are okay. None of us are okay. And you're not going to be judged here. This is my disclaimer. If you are judged here, tell somebody. Because we're going to take care of it. And we're going to take care of it swiftly. That doesn't mean we're going to kill anybody. (laughs) Unless it comes to that. We do have some people barely saved that do like to handle things, you know. Gotta look away for a minute. But seriously, there are hundreds of churches in our community who would love to have your judgmental butt in their rosters. And that's fine. Go. But judgmentalism kills a church. It kills our witness. It kills everything that we stand for in connecting unbelievers to God and believers to each other. We can't say, come on, get saved. Come to the cross. Did you see what he was wearing when he went down front? That is just hypocrisy at its best and worst. We at Connection Church are called to pray with you, come alongside you, and show you the grace of God. We are called as a family to cry with you, to laugh with you, to help you. Many of you can testify that there's no way that you could be where you are today if it hadn't been for your church, if it hadn't been for the the family that surrounded you, the people that came to you. I I am amazed and have been amazed since I've been here and, and in my practice, people from Connection Church who bring people to our office, sit in a therapy session with them because they were scared to get help. But people in this church said, I'll go with you. It's a little weird, but hey, got you there. That's awesome. One of the greatest two words that we can hear from anyone and for them to mean it are the words, me too. Me too. We can't do life alone. We cannot do life alone. It can be hidden. God, we can fake it. Can we fake it? But it will be found out. It comes out in so many different ways. The third and final thing that we have to do to get out of this overwhelmed feeling is we must desire for God to lead us through it, not take us out of it. We must desire for God to lead us through it, not to pull us out. Because that's, that's just not going to happen. I almost fell. So, but isn't this how we work? You know that those, you know, where places have video games and they got that big thing 
with a crane in it. You try to get the, the stuffed animals out. A little frustrating, you know. Try that thing. My nine-year-old comes out there and it's like, you know, gets a giant bear. How'd you do that? You don't have good hand-eye coordination yet. What's the deal with this? I'm 41. I can't do it. But that's kind of the vision I get is that that's our expectation from God. Oh, gosh, I'm dying down here. God, just get me out of Get me out of Get me out. He plucks us out. Hadn't seen it happen, you know. Even Jonah had to live in a fish for a little while. God didn't just pluck him out of the ocean. He said, why don't you ride this wave on this nasty fish for a little while? Not a very good trade-off, I don't think. God doesn't work that way, and we know that. But don't we get to the point this morning on the way here? You know, I'm thinking, I feel good about today. I'm, I'm ready to preach, and I'm coming in from the west side, and get to the first traffic light, turns yellow. Oh, slow down here. Go again. Next traffic light, yellow. Slow down there. Third traffic light, I'm not going to make it through this one. Yellow. For the love. Are you serious? Have you ever had those prayers where they begin with, come on? Come on, God! I'm going to preach for you. Can I not even get there without stopping at every light here? I'm wearing out my brakes in one trip to town. The come on prayers. We get in these situations where we're so overwhelmed and so overburdened by things, we just finally just stop and go, come on, God. Help me. And what that says is, God, change everything else around me so I don't have to do anything. Turn the light green, God. Make my life easier. Change my wife. Change my parents. Change my girlfriend. Change everything. Help me get through this test. All those things. We don't pray for God to change everybody else. We've got to pray for God to change us. We have to humble ourselves before God and allow him to plunder around in our pride and do what he's asked us to do. I handle a lot of situations of, around self-esteem. And uh, one of the things that uh, I learned from going through this is people say, well, you know, she has such a low self-esteem. She doesn't really think a lot of herself. I'm like, au contraire. She thinks everything about herself. It's all about her. Even if it's negative, it's still all about her. And when I realized that, I was like, golly, that's kind of ugly. But it's so true. When we are prideful, when we say, I don't need any help, I got this, we're being selfish. We're prideful and saying, I'm the best thing to ever walk the face of the earth. We're being selfish. Same sin, two different results. Still nobody likes to be around you. It's when we sit down in the face of God and we say, I cannot do this anymore. I'm tired, I'm worn out, and I need help. Allow God to plunder around, get in your face, get in your business, and show you what needs to be shown. You can be on the other side of this thing. You know, God did it for Daniel. He gave him a better view of himself. A better view of himself. In Daniel 2, verse 20, 
He said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God, of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Daniel got on his knees, surrounded by his friends, and he asked for help. He said, God, we need you. There's no way I can know what this crazy man dreamed. I can't help it if somebody came and offended him and spoke up and got him all ticked off, but we need help here because we're going to die if we don't get this right. And God in all of his majesty and all of his glory revealed that to Daniel. He revealed what he needed to know. God does not desire to pluck you out of a situation. He desires to walk you through it. He desires to stand in the midst of it with you. One of the most awesome pictures I like to to think of is when Lazarus died. You know, the ladies were a little ticked off. They had sent for Jesus several days earlier before he died. Lazarus is sick. Lazarus is sick. We need your help. We need your help. We need your help. We get this picture of Jesus kind of moseying. And we do that in the South. Jesus just moseyed to Lazarus. He finally gets there and Lazarus has been dead for days. They're like, why didn't you come, Jesus? They were so overwhelmed with grief and despair and anger, not knowing which direction to go in. And then that famous verse that we all memorized, Jesus wept. We got that one, right? Jesus wept. And I've heard so many weird translations of what this meant. But the picture that I'm, that I think and I feel what was going on there is Jesus wasn't crying for Lazarus. He was about to raise him from the dead. Why would he cry? He wasn't upset about that. He was crying and he wept over their grief. That's what he does for us. That's what God does with us. He despairs and he grieves over the choices that we make and the things that happen to us. You can come through this. He's saying God is able earlier. God is able. Nothing is bigger than him. But you must be willing to let the pride and selfishness and victimization keep you from letting it go. You cannot live like that. So after the interpretation, Daniel comes to the king and he interprets the dream for him. And in verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. 
he made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Daniel was obedient to God in an overwhelming situation, and he was blessed because of it. In the worst of situations that you might be in, as bad as things are and as heavy as you feel like it is right now, this time of year, right where you sit, you're sitting, God can bless you. God can take the messiest of situations, the most grotesque and despicable things that can happen to us and make you beautiful again. He has the power to do that. He created you and he can cleanse you get the help you need he doesn't want to pluck you out he wants to walk you through it I want you to bow your head and close your eyes I know it's a heavy topic and I know that some of you in here would love to just run and get out of this room think that I would be remiss not to give an opportunity for you to get help. There are those of you who are sitting here this morning and just yesterday you thought about taking your own life. In the last month you've thought about it. In the last year you've thought about taking your own life and just ending it. It's just not worth it. Some of you struggle with cutting You don't even know what cutting is, but you know who you are. You know you did it last night just to relieve some pressure, just to take it away. Those of you in here are just sitting here thinking, God, my kids are just about to be grown, and I don't I don't know who my spouse is, and I don't know what purpose I have after they're gone. They don't need me anymore. situations are all over this room and it's my prayer this morning that you get the help you need it's what I'm going to ask you to do with your eyes closed everybody's heads bowed and eyes closed if if you need help right now if you're struggling with this or if you don't even know Christ and you're on this side of the cross that we talked about you don't have a relationship with him you're hopeless and you are, because it's not about what you have, it's about what you don't have. You need a starting point today and you need to receive Christ. So if you want to be prayed with, we've got some people who are chomping at the bits to grab you and to hold you and to pray with you and point you in the direction you need. So right now, right where you are, if you want that prayer right now, I want you to just get up and walk to your right people are waiting to pray with you to your right to my left there are doors over here just get up right where you are we would love to pray with you right now or if you want to receive Christ for the first time today go right now
God, you know our hearts. You know every one of us in this room. You know the things that we're dealing with, how we are hurting. And God, I know, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there are people in here who need a word from you. I pray that what they've heard today will be a starting point, a stepping stone, a place to just go from. Love you, we thank you, and we pray all this in your son's holy and precious name.